Let us pray. Just a closer walk with Thee is what we all need, Father. We need to remember that when we get away from walking with You, we start depending on our own devices and think everything depends upon us. But when we walk with You, then we know Your grace is sufficient. We commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may have noticed in your bulletin that Pastor Jim Myers is going to be speaking here next Sunday. He has a ministry in the Ukraine. He has spoke here before, and Yahweh's... Uh, has a great message, so I hope you make a point to be here. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately any unconfessed sins to God which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for giving us another day. Another day that we can grow in grace and knowledge. We're so thankful for Your Word that we don't have to figure things out by ourselves on our own. We don't have to go through life confused, angry, and disgruntled because Your work reveals to us the great promises that You have for us now the ones that are yet in the future, that we can have an eternal sense of destiny if we trust You, if we continue to live day by day, moment by moment, thanking divine viewpoint because we have redeemed the time learning Your Word. So we pray that You will help us to concentrate this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue with our study in Joshua today. It's actually a review. And you might see on the board here, these are the chapters probably by the end of the day that we will cover. We've already covered chapter 1. What you see out to the side is essentially what the chapter is about. The first chapter has to do with encouragement. There are so many promises there. If you feel afraid you feel like you just can't hardly manage, that's the, ver that's the chapter you want to read. The second one has to do with Rahab. Rahab the harlot, the believer in the midst of a sea of pagans. We see God's faithfulness in rescuing her and how He can get His Word to anybody at any time. All they need is positive volition. And then chapter 3, what an exciting chapter that was. Crossing the Jordan. I know there are books that know how to raise the anxiety, going to a pivotal point, makes one anxious what's going to come next. They don't have anything on God because when you read the third chapter, and you see how the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When they got to the Jordan River was the moment of truth. And when they put their foot into the water, it was either going to happen or it wasn't. And of course, when their foot touched the water, they went across on dry ground. And that's just, that was a tremendous one. Chapter 4 is a little bit harder because it has to do with the historical record. Whenever God does things... He wants to record it. He wants to save it for our posterity. And so uh, we have the stacking of stones, some in the river, some out of the river, that had to do with positional truth uh, and retroactive uh, positional truth and current positional truth. Uh, we went through that already. Chapter 5 had to do with preparing for Jericho. And that's where we're going to pick up the study this morning in our review. Now, you'll remember that this isn't completely um, covered here because we're just kind of hitting the highlights. 
One of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that uh, occurred when the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground, the Bible says that the hearts of the Canaanites melted. Well, I guess they would. They had already heard of the great feats that the God of Israel had accomplished. But they thought, well, we're, we're, we're safe. The Jordan is between us and the Israelites. And it's the flood season. It may be up to a mile wide. Uh, they wouldn't dare try crossing that. And then when they heard, not only did they cross it, but they tro- uh, crossed it on dry ground. They were just, they hit the panic button. They all ran into uh, the first city that the uh, Israelites were going to attack, which was Jericho. And when they got to that city, they just ran in. They didn't take any of their food with them. They, isn't that what you do when you're in a hurry, when you're afraid, you're not thinking properly? So uh, that played into the hand of uh, the Jews because we see in verses 11 through 12. By the way, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter While you're turning there, you remember when they crossed the river, they set up a a headquarters in a place called Gilgal, which wasn't that far from Jericho. And that's when the Lord commanded that all the young men be circumcised, which was, (laughs) militarily speaking, suicide. Because they had the back to the river. They had no retreat. The enemy could attack them if all the, uh, the young men were recuperating from surgery. It could have been a disaster. But Joshua said, well, this doesn't make sense. But God said to do it. He knows what he's doing. So they did it. And Gilgal, the name Gilgal means um, rolling away. And what it means is God rolled away the... Uh, the persecution, not actually the persecution, but you could say the curse that was on them when they were in the uh, wilderness. The reproach is the word I'm looking for. The reproach was rolled away. Because the first generation of the Exodus refused to cross the Jordan, so they were uh, to go back into the wilderness for 40 years, and all of them were going to die except Joshua and Caleb, except those who were younger uh, than uh, 20 years old. So now, during that time, there was no circumcision. That was done away with because that is a ritual. It's a sign of blessing. It's what happened to um, Abraham when God made the promises to him. He was circumcised in order to mark that particular occasion, God's faithfulness and blessing upon Israel. So when they were in the wilderness, they weren't being blessed. So that was done away with. So after they crossed the Jordan... See, they were obedient, they trusted the Lord, and they went to the other side of the Jordan. The first thing that God did was say, okay, now we're going to reinstall this ritual because now Israel is going to be under blessing again and not cursing. So we went over that a little bit uh, before. Now in verse 11 and 12, we find out that the manna that they had been getting all this time stopped. They observed the, uh, the Passover. The day after the Passover... The manna that they had received all this time as a provision stopped. Now, why did it stop? Well, the reason is because it was no longer needed because the Israelites started eating the fruit and the produce of the Canaanites. So one thing that we can glean from that is God is always faithful in producing what we would call logistical grace. He's going to provide for your needs with regards to food, clothing, uh, housing, uh, everything that we need in order to uh, survive and in, in, in serve Him. So now that was no longer needed, and so they were going to uh, be able to sustain themselves through this. Something else that we see in chapter uh, 5 is that... Um, Joshua had an encounter with someone. Uh, he didn't know. He didn't have instructions yet as to what to do with uh, move move out of Gilgal. Where were they to go? Were they to go to the first city of Jericho? And so, as Joshua was thinking about this, he was 
walking out outside the camp and he came in contact with a stranger. This was some stranger. It was the uh, Lord of the armies who had his sword drawn. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine what that encounter must have been like? Joshua wasn't anticipating this. It wasn't a vision. It was the Lord Jesus himself. And he had the sword out. At this time, Joshua was probably in his, I don't know, 60s, maybe 70s. I know to some of you young people, you think 60 is ancient. Well, you'll, Lord willing, you'll be 60 someday and it won't look so old then. But anyway, <laughs> here he is an older man and he has this Lord of the armies with a sword drawn. But Joshua does show some courage here and some, uh, some stability. Because the first thing he'd ask, ask the Lord of the armies was, are you for us or are you against us? I mean, he just didn't dilly-dally around. He cut right to the chase. Are we going to do battle here or what? And this person informed him that I am the Lord of the armies. You see, Joshua thought he was in charge of the armies. But very quickly he recognized, oh, this is my boss. And so he went to his face because he recognized who it was. And so in that encounter, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to tell Joshua that he has already given Jericho into his hands. It's already his. All he, all he had to do was go and take it. And that's how this chapter ends. But there's something in here for us to recognize. This just isn't a Bible story. It's not a story anyway. It's a historical account. Just as the Lord was there for Moses and Joshua before he faced the enemy, he's always there for us as well. Now, he came to uh, Moses... As a traveler, and excuse me, as a burning in the burning bush, and he came to Joshua as a soldier. So he doesn't come to us that way when we're in need. We can't see him the way Moses saw the burning bush. We can't see him the way Joshua saw the Lord of the armies. This is where we see him, right here. At least for right now. There is going to be a day when we see him face to face. But in the meantime, the way that we see our Lord is through his word. And so whatever battles you have to face, whatever enemies, whatever woes and troubles, just remember, just because you don't see the Lord the same way that Moses and Joshua did, does not mean that he's not with you. He's right here in the word. But hopefully, he's up here. That's where he needs to be. This word needs to be up here. And when you have that up there, he's with you. And, of course, he's always going to uh, defend and uphold you. Okay, we move on to chapter 6 now because this is just a review. The chapter 6, the title for it is Jericho Falls. Jericho is defeated. There's a lot about walls in chapter 6. You see, the Canaanites, they ran in behind this fortress city. And Jericho was a fortress city, and it actually had double walls, two walls around the city. And they were enough, there was enough distance between them to where people would put houses. They would put structures across and build houses in between the two walls. And so they go behind the walls and they think, mm-hmm, we're fine now. I don't care if they came across on dry ground. Let the Israelite God try to penetrate these walls. And of course, they had already recognized that the Jews didn't have any battering rams. They didn't have any catapults. They didn't have any towers to move against the walls or anything. So they, put, they felt pretty safe. But what I want to point out here is that you never are victorious by going on the defensive. And that's what, so, what happens so many times these days. 
That kind of strategy is disastrous, and it's particularly disastrous in the spiritual realm. We want to be aggressive. We want to be on the attack, not hide behind some kind of walls. And we see in Joshua that the walls, well, the walls come down. And so they're, they're no defense anyway. And so I put together a few points here that has to do with, it's really a description of believers who think they can live the spiritual life on the defense instead of the offense. Point number one, these type of people that are trying to live the spiritual life by leaving it, living it defensively, they only rely on the doctrine that they learned in the past. They're not interested in learning new doctrine because they have all the doctrine they need. Why exert yourself? And there's this, this describes no telling how many uh, believers. They get to us what they consider a comfortable spiritual level, and then they just kind of sit back. They put their spiritual let me put this, let me reword this. They try to put their spiritual transmission in neutral. There's only one problem with that. Y'all know what it is, don't you? There's no neutral in your spiritual transmission. You're either going forward or backwards. So if you think, well, I've learned enough doctrine, uh, I've got so many things, I don't want to just go and hear the same old stuff, I'm good to go. Well, that is a person that's living defensively and not on the offensive. Point two. They don't look for opportunities to give the gospel or talk about doctrine. In fact, they go out of their way to avoid anything that might be uncomfortable or embarrassing. These are, these, this is living on the defensive. Don't look for opportunities to witness to someone. Don't stand firm for the faith because someone might get upset. Or someone might ask you a question and you don't know the answer, then you'd be embarrassed. The easiest thing to do is just play it safe. Stay behind those safe walls. Number three, they take the path of least resistance in life because they are uncomfortable taking a doctrinal stand. You know what I mean? Taking the easy way, the line of least resistance. There are people who every time they come to a decision, there's an issue. Isn't there always an issue? There's always an issue. And what their main pattern in living life and in their decision making is do whatever's easiest. Take the, the least line of resistance. If you're on the defensive spiritually, that means, well, just don't do anything. If someone says something that you know is biblically incorrect, maybe it even has to do with the gospel, well, don't speak out. I mean, you'd have to exert yourself and maybe get involved. So why not just Stand back in the shadows, let everything go by, take the easy road. That's someone living on the defensive. Number four, being a good ambassador for Christ by getting spiritually prepared and rightly dividing the word of truth is not a priority for them. You see, if you know that you are in the angelic conflict, which we all are, and you know that there's going to be spiritual combat every day, then you're going to want to be prepared. You're going to be, or you will desire to be on the cutting edge and be just as sharp as possible. But for those who live on the defensive, that's not a priority for them because they're not intending to get on the front line anyway. They're so far back in the lines, they don't even know where the front line is. A lot of them don't even know that they're in battle. And they're casualties. Number five. They're afraid to talk to Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, or anyone who might confront them about their faith. There are some people when they hear, and they look out the door, 
And there's the two bicycles and the two guys out there in white shirts and ties. And they run high and get on the bed. That's someone living on the defensive. They don't want to have to confront someone. They might be embarrassed. <laughs> Some of this came in my mind. I don't know why it jumped in there. I guess I ought to say it. Um, didn't have to be Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. And I guess it was around 1969, somewhere along in there. Um, I went to a church. I was living in an apartment, by the way, upstairs. It's called the New Orleans Apartments, over there close to the Astrodome. And I visited a church, and it's one of those churches where you fill out all your information. And I was dumb enough to fill out all my information. <laughs> and I remember what the pastor looked like. And I was sitting one time, uh, one evening, and I had a kind of a picture window here. And I looked down, and I saw the pastor come through the gate. And man, I hit the lights, made sure the door was locked, went in the corner and just, is he gone yet? One of these. Well, we don't do visitation. I, my experience with visitation on the other end was not pleasant. I don't like people to just drop in on me when I don't know, especially if it's a preacher. So, uh, <laughs> too revealing in it, yeah. Um, we don't have organized visitation because every one of you should be visiting every single day. You're looking for opportunities. You're not on the defensive. When something comes up about some issue, especially it has to do with the Bible or something, uh, homosexuality, all these other issues that are controversial, what do you do? You just kind of, res kind of retreat back into the shadows. Let them handle it. I'm, I'm on the defensive. I'm taking the easy road. Number six, they gauge their spiritual growth more by their moral purity than their knowledge and application of doctrine. You see, this is for kindergarten believers that think that morality is a measure of your spiritual life. Are believers... Supposed to be moral? Yes, they are. And does that have something to do with your spiritual life? Yes, to a degree. But it's missing the invisible part of your spiritual life, which is everything. Unbelievers can be moral. They're probably more moral than we are. But morality is not a gauge as to if you're spiritual or not. You can be totally moral and not be spiritual at all. In fact, you might even be an unbeliever. But that's a comfort zone for those who are in the defensive mode. Whenever you're not getting doctrine, whenever you're not growing spiritually, you kind of lapse over into this kindergarten-type uh, mentality. Well, I'm good. I, I haven't, um, haven't cheated and I haven't robbed anybody and I'm very careful not to curse around people and um, let's see no fornication you just go through the list and you think man I'm good to go so I can rem remain back here in my defensive mode because this is what I think spirituality is now and so they kind of assuage their guilt for not being on the cutting edge being on the offensive, being aggressive by looking back to their morality and thinking, well, this is good. Number seven, the last one. By the way, we're going to get into sevens big time in just a minute. And this is number seven. This number seven is, the number seven means completion, finished. Well, we're finished with the points on number seven. I just noticed that. That's pretty neat. Because the next thing we're going to is sevens. Okay, number seven. They really don't realize that they were engaged in spiritual combat. In this conflict, taking the offensive does not mean doing great things for Christ. Listen to this. When you take the offensive, you're no longer back within the shadows just trying to take the easy way. 
being on the offensive doesn't mean all these great things you're going to do for Christ. When you get on the offensive, what it means is trusting Christ to do great things for you. You see the difference? I'm not saying get out there and hustle. I mean, you can if you want to, but if you do it and you're trying to impress God with all the great feats that you're accomplishing, that's not what, that's not what being on the offensive is. If you're on the offensive spiritually, which is what we're talking about, what you're doing is trusting Christ to do great things through you and for you. You got that? So, all the burden is on Him, not on us. Okay, Joshua chapter 6, verse 4. I want you to take your pen and circle each one of the sevens in this verse, okay? Joshua chapter 6, verse 4. Now, let me give you a little background here. God had already told Joshua that he had given him Jericho. And then he gave him, in chapter 6, he starts telling him how he's going to do it. And they are to, you, you know the account, they're going to walk around the city and they're, eventually they're going to blow the horns and so forth. But in verse, verse 4, watch this. Also, seven priests, circle the seven, Seven priests shall carry, what? Seven trumpets of rams. Those were the ram's horns. Seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, circle that one, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. So... There's a lot of sevens there. And so what I want to do is bring up my PowerPoint here on sevens. But I, for, I will start out on this PowerPoint with a... Um, well, the map isn't there. Okay, well, that's all right. I was going to go in a little more detail here. This is the first verse of the... Bible in Hebrew, and there's a lot of um, sevens I could deal with there as well, but I decided not to take the time to do it. You lead from right to left here in Hebrew. Barashith, Bara, Elohim, Eight, Hashayayim, Nate, and in English, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's seven words there. If you, in the, um, there are, there's a number assigned to each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It has a number for each letter. And if you go to the numbers in this and you work out the sevens, it's astonishing. But I have, I have to press on and show you some other things here with regards to seven. There's seven days in a week. The Sabbath was the seventh day. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. Remember how the Jews got in trouble for not observing the sabbatical years? How long did they not observe them? 490 years they did not observe the sabbatical years. That means they were going to let the, the land just go fallow and not plant and so and all these other things. And so God said at the end of 490 years, okay, you missed 70 Sabbaths. You didn't, like, you didn't let the land rest. Guess what? The land is going to rest while you're in captivity in Babylon. And how long were they in Babylon, in captivity? 70 years. God means what he says, doesn't he? Every 49th year was the year of Jubilee. In Egypt, there were seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Solomon was seven years building the temple. After it was completed, there, were, there was a feast for seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days, and Naaman washed seven times in the river. The book of Revelation uses the number seven over 50 times. Seven churches, seven lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, seven spirits, seven stars, seven angels, seven heads, and seven plates. That's a lot of sevens. 
The number of Old Testament writers named in the Bible is exactly 21, which is 3 times 7. The numeric number of the Hebrew names, that's what I was describing a little earlier, is divided by 7. In other words, if you take these uh, Hebrew names that are, are, that are given, these 21 uh, Old Testament writers, comes out to 3,808, which is 544 times 7. There are seven Old Testament writers named in the New Testament. The numeric number of the Hebrew names, of their Hebrew names, is divided by 7. It's 1,554, which is 222 times 7. Somebody had a lot of time on their hands figuring all this out. David is the name most used in the Old Testament. It is used 1,134 times, which is divisible by 7, 162 times 7. The name Jeremiah is found in, the, in seven Old Testament books in seven different forms in the Hebrew. The number of times it is found in these books is 147 times, which is 21 times 7. Moses' name occurred exactly 847 times in the Bible, 121 times 7. Let me just think, 147, I mean 847. Just think if one writer said Moses just once too many times, it wouldn't work. Well, anyway, the, uh, in the sphere of light, there are seven colors that merge to form light. In the sphere of music, there are seven whole tones in the scale. The human body is renewed or changed every seven years. Now, let me tell you something. This is an encouragement to me. <laughs> you know, I keep saying, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to exercise more, and all this. And I always have that carrot out hanging in front of me saying, you can have a new body in seven years. Okay. A man's years is declared to be three score and ten, which is seventy. Sixty. Plus 10 is 70 years. The gestation period for humans is 280 days, which is 40 times 7. You know, gestation is from the time of uh, germination till, till you have the whatever you're going to have. <laughs> Do you like that escape? Okay. For a mouse or a hen, it's 21 days, 3 times 7. A rabbit or a rat, it's 4 times 7. You ever heard of uh, they multiplying like rats or rabbits? I used to have rabbits. I chose to have rabbits. I probably have some rats, but um, didn't, didn't order those. For a cat, it's 56 days, 8 times 7. For a dog, 63 days, 9 times 7. For a lion, it's 98 days, 14 times 7. For a sheep, it's 147 days, 21 times 7. Are you getting the idea that seven is an important number in the Bible? Okay, that was my point. I want you to see that. Um, because when God says do it seven times, he's got a reason for it. Now, at the center of the camp, when the, when the Israelites were going to move out, I mean, when they, when they camped, the tabernacle, you know what the tabernacle was? It was a portable temple. It was a tent. And they would set it up, and they would set it up in a particular location facing a certain direction, and all, the, all of the uh, tribes were to go around it, to camp around it. And you know what that was for? Boy, I had a great... Uh, had a great picture for that. Do I have it here? I don't know what happened to it. Well, it's not here. Okay, anyway. Um, the, the purpose was the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. Specifically, it was where? The Holy of Holies. And the, the imagery here is important because... When they camped, the ark was in the middle of the camp, which means the ark, which represented who? Jesus Christ was the focal point. Any place 
360 degrees around there where Israelites camped that could look towards the center and see Jesus Christ. He was the focal point. And I think there's a message there for us. In a local church, it is Jesus Christ that needs to be the focal point. How about the family? In the family, it is Jesus Christ who is to be the focal point. Wow. Is next week Father's Day? Isn't it? Okay. This would make a great line for Father's Day as well. But who's responsible to make sure that Jesus Christ is the focal point in the family? Hmm? The fathers, right. It's not because the wife is nagging either. Oh, I'll save that for next time. I don't, next time Jim's going to talk, but I'm going to, I'm going to have a little say. I can't have Father's Day go by without having a little bit to say. Verse 10. The people were not allowed to march around, uh, to say a word as they marched around. And they were going to do this six days. Now, jo- Joshua knew that God had already given Jericho into their hands. He already knew that. And so... The people didn't. And so Joshua says, okay, this is going to be our plan of battle. We're going to get up, we're going to get in all our battle right, and we're going to go, and we're going to go around, we're going to march around the city of Jericho, and then we're going to come back. That's the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. And don't say a word. The whole time that you're marching, going around the city, coming back here, the Bible says, Don't open your mouth. Okay? They did that the first day. The second day, what are we going to do? We're going to get up, get in battle array, and we're going to march around the city. Don't say a word. Again? Yeah, again. Okay. Third day, what are they going to do? Get up, put on the battle array, and march around the city. Probably around the fifth day, people started... I know that Joshua is a great military leader. But I don't get it. March around the city? They, were, they did that six times. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why do you suppose that Joshua said, keep your mouth shut when you're doing this? I've got a couple of uh, things. One is... Uh, you might go here. This is an important verse. We all need this. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Very powerful chapter. I want you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 7. Ecclesiastes 3, 7. And I want you to star this verse. Because you need it and I need it. Ecclesiastes 3, 7. There is a time to be silent. And a time to speak. I want you to start the verse and underline the part that says there's a time to be silent. The speaking part we pretty well have covered. Ecclesiastes 3, 7. Y'all find it? Time to be silent and a time to speak. Well, this was a time to be silent upon orders of the commander-in-chief of the forces of Israel, which came, no doubt, from God. Okay. So why? Why were they to keep silent? Well, they were already probably getting somewhat disgruntled. If they were forbidden to open their mouth to speak, you know what there wasn't going to be? Yes. No complaining. No arguing. No contention. Shows how we get in trouble. Most of the time it's with our mouth. So what did they need to do? They needed to be obedient and trust the Lord. 
Joshua was the Lord's anointed. He already demonstrated that he was being faithful. So they didn't understand why they were doing this or why they had to be quiet. And here's the thing. If you want victory in life, the two things you have to do is be obedient and trust the Lord. That's all they needed to do. Joshua was going to tell them at the right time why they were doing this and what was going to happen. Another little thing I want to glean from this. I think most of us live in a routine, don't we? I mean, don't you have a routine? Tomorrow's Monday, and you're going to get up, and you're probably going to do the same thing that you did the Monday before, right? And the Monday before that, and the Monday before, and so forth. And sometimes we can get the idea that, well, I just do the same routine over and over and over again. What's the, what's it up, why is it, is it important that I keep doing this routine? Should you complain? Should you get angry at anybody because your, your routine isn't as glorious as maybe somebody else's? Here's the point. They got up every morning and they went through the same routine. They didn't know why. All they knew was they were supposed to be obedient and trust the Lord. And after they had done it six times the seventh day, they thought, okay, here's another day. We're going to go out and we're going to walk around and keep our mouths shut. And Joshua said, no. This time, not only are you going to open your mouth, you're going to shout. And the trumpets are going to blow. And we're going to watch the deliverance of the Lord. But what did they have to do first? They had to walk around six times, keep their mouth shut, go through the same routine. There's a purpose. Even though you can't see the purpose, when you're obedient and you're going through this routine and you think it doesn't matter, nobody cares what my routine is. Nobody cares if I'm obedient. Nobody cares if I read my Bible. Nobody cares if I'm, I have a quiet time and I'm, and I'm, I'm in the Word. Or you just keep doing it. And the Lord, there's going to be a day, that seventh day is coming when the Lord is going to say, okay, you've demonstrated that you're faithful. You've demonstrated that you're obedient. You've demonstrated that you trust me. Now watch what I'm going to do. See what was happening there? It could be that God is just testing you to see if you're faithful. Anybody can be faithful for a day or two, can't they? There's so many people that have come to this church, like so many other churches. I said come, maybe I should say haunt. Well, actually I shouldn't say haunt because they don't stay here long enough to haunt it. They're coming in and they're saying, you know, okay, let me see what you got. They don't come here to see what they can give. They come to see what what they can get. And we are considered by a lot of people, the standard that they a very boring, dull church. We don't have any drums. We don't have any electric guitars. We do have this. Is that going to scare anybody away? It might scare some people. I don't know. We don't have all the razzmatazz, you see. And so they're not going to stick around long enough because they're here for the wrong reason. But those who come, and if they're hungry from the Word, they're on the offensive, they want to be good and faithful servants. They're going to get fed here. They're going to stick it out, and then God is going to do great things for them because they're going to learn doctrine and they can apply it and see what God is going to do. Okay. You know what happened the seventh day. They blew the horns, and they shouted. And what happened? The walls fell down. Was that it? I mean, was it over? What did they have to do? Well, you can say the, at the least the, the people in Jericho were in shock when all their big walls they were dependent on came, they came falling down. No telling how many were killed in that. Joshua instructed them, as soon as those walls fall down, you go straight into the city. So they were circled, they encircled the city. And so when the walls fell down, every one of them came in from every angle. So you can imagine it was easy pickings, and they put everything and everyone to death. 
that was the first fruits of the first city. It was dedicated to God. And that's going to be big in the uh, next few uh, verses. It was devoted to the Lord of the first fruits. Everything and everyone was killed except who? Yeah, Rahab. Remember Rahab, chapter 2? She had a red cord hanging out the window. And you know, the Bible doesn't say this, but I surmise that all the walls around the entire city fell except in one spot. It has to be. She was supposed to put a red cord outside her, her house. Her house was built on the walls. So there had to be one spot where the walls didn't fall. And so the, the Bible says, let's see, we're in chapter 6. I told you all to open my, your Bible. I'm reading off my notes. Let's, let's go, I want to go to the, to the Bible myself and find in chapter 6 something that I want you to... There's something in here that you could miss pretty easy that I think is important. Um, Verse 20, let's see, 24. Let's start with verse 23. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had, they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. That would be in the tabernacle. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she lives in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, especially in verse 23, they had to be inside the house. All these relatives were... Inside the house as instructed. The Bible doesn't say, but I was just curious. I wonder if she had any relatives that she said, the Israelites are going to come, they're going to destroy the city, everything's going to be killed. If you're inside the house, you'll be saved. I wonder if she had any that said, oh, (laughs) oh boy, we got the walls, what are you talking about? I wonder if she had any that were outside the house. What would happen to them if they were outside the house? Toast, right? What did God say to the Jews at the Passover? They were to be where? Inside. So, there is deliverance, but there has to be obedience as well. And this is what saved them in a physical sense. You see, Rahab was already saved. She already had eternal life. She had believed in the gospel as it was revealed at her time, the the amount of information she had. But she still had to be obedient. She had to put out the red card. She had to get all of her relatives that were going to be saved inside the house. And there may well have been relatives, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, whoever they were, outside that it said, Ha! I don't believe it. My point is this. Do you see how important it always is to believe, to trust the Lord? That is the, that's the springboard. That's the trigger point. Until you start trusting, it's not going to happen. You're going to be like everyone else. And so again, we see the great emphasis on believing what Rahab said, the people that, were, that she was talking to. I, I just wish I was a fly on the wall when she was telling her relatives... Um, the, the Israelites are going to come. They're going to destroy the city. You need to be the, inside the house. They're going to save us. Well, how do you know this, Rahab? 
Well, there was two spies that came. Two Israelite spies were here? Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, I hid them from the king. You did what? Can you imagine the conversation? And there, don't you, I would imagine that there were some relatives that said, I'm out of here. I don't have anything to do with this. You already defied the king. You know, in those days, if a family member defied the king, he, he just didn't kill the family member. He killed the whole family. And they said, I am out here. I don't want to be involved. I don't have anything to do with this, see? So it would be very easy for the negative volition to kick in, and they weren't, if they were not in the house, they, according to the Word of God, everything, even the animals, everything that had breath, died except Rahab and her family. And even her family had to trust Rahab. And Rahab was trusting who? The Lord. She was trusting in the amount, of, the, the amount of knowledge that she had about the God of Israel. So in, in it all, what we're seeing in this whole thing, I love to go into chapter 7, uh, which is next. I'm just tying up the loose ends in chapter 6 here. But one thing that we see that is just so evident throughout this whole thing, the two things that are paramount in the Christian life is to trust and obey. We should have had that one today, Joe. <laughs> we should have had trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, well, that ties up uh, chapter 6. We'll, we won't do chapter 7 next time because uh, we'll have a speaker. We'll do this the Sunday after that. I'd like everyone, please, to bow your head and close your eyes. You know, you really have privacy when you do that in your own soul. You're not distracted. I want you to be thinking about the most important part of this whole service, and that is the offer of the gospel to anyone that is here or who, who might be listening on the Internet as to how to be saved. First of all, you have to know that you need saving. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is not going to let you into His heaven unless you are as good as He is, perfect, the only way to do that is to have His own righteousness, which comes from believing on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. He died for your sins. He was buried and resurrected, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who trusts Him and Him alone for it. We were talking about how important it is to trust, to believe. This is the ultimate. The moment that anyone puts their trust in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, rather than their own works, He is born again. He is a new creature. His ticket to heaven is guaranteed. But we still live in the devil's world, and we still need to grow in grace and knowledge so that we can glorify God and, and possibly bring great blessings to ourselves by trusting and obeying. The Father, we're so thankful for your mighty word and the things that we see that these people went through. We pray that we won't have to learn the hard way through disobedience, but we can take admonishment from your scriptures so that we can trust and obey and see your great hand work on our behalf. We pray all these things in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.